Thank you so much, gentlemen. Those were some of the fellows from the Bible College singing for you. Well, with your Bible open, if you would, please. Um, in Romans chapter 1, we have uh, our subject before us. This month, I've been trying to bring a series of messages on Sunday mornings about some of the qualities or the character of God. We've looked at his different uh, character qualities and understand that God is so immense, so big. I'm not sure that we could examine it all in a lifetime. The God we serve is so awesome and wonderful. You can't contain God in the world itself. It's not big enough. To deal with his qualities, we can only really scratch the surface. But we have looked at some of his qualities of love and grace and mercy, pity. I don't believe a study of the <clears throat> character qualities of God would be complete if we did not examine the quality of his wrath. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The context here, I believe, is that unsaved men know that God exists. All of the atheists deep down know that there's a God out there. There's an old saying during the war that there, there are no atheists in foxholes. The foxhole is where the soldier would dig a hole in the ground. He'd get in there for protection as the bullets were flying over his head. And many's a man has cried out to God for safety and help and mercy in these foxholes. And so born out of adversity, born out of the days of the war, both first and second and other wars, we have this saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. When a man is hanging out of an airplane at 10,000 feet, only his fingers gripping somehow, he'll find a way to call out to God, be he an evolutionist or an atheist or whatever he is, he'll cry out to God because man is made that way. Unfortunately, they hold this truth in unrighteousness. And uh, then it goes on, the verses go on to say how God has revealed it to them, even the invisible things of, of God. And so unsaved people all know. If you have an unsaved friend who claims to be atheistic or evolutionist or something, and they try to deny the existence of God, it's only superficial, folks. I'll tell you a little secret. Every single atheist who has died now believes in God. There is a heaven above and there is a hell beneath. And men are either saved and on their way to heaven or they're lost and they're on their way to hell. And in hell, they lift up their eyes. Where am I? And the, and the truth becomes very painful. Every atheist in hell believes in God. You know, even the devil, the devil himself. In the book of James, it says, thou believest in one God, thou doest well. The devil also believes and trembles. Today, we're going to do a study and we'll only scratch the surface, but I think it would be enough 
we'll do a study on the wrath of God. And you'll actually see a benefit to this. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our heavenly father, we approach a subject that is a little strange. It's very deep and often misunderstood. And that's the character quality of your wrath. Help us, Heavenly Father, to understand this and thereby to get to know you more. So many misconceptions about you, Lord. There are groups and peoples that only seem to think that you're just a a God of love. And you are a God of love. But you're so much more than this. Help us to get a glimpse of it today. Enough to change our lives. And Father, if there be one here today who's not yet placed his or her faith for salvation in the Lord Jesus, show them today, convince them today, Lord. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the Bible, Old Testament and New, we've got the old written in Hebrew, the new written in Greek, both translated into English, thanks to our King James Bible. Um, We have several words In the Hebrew, say, for example, words which describe God's wrath. Now, wrath is a little different from anger. Uh, Wrath is anger that has become violent. That's what the word wrath means. That's the meaning, the etymology of the word wrath is anger that has become violent. And there's a place for that in God's heart and character. But here's a couple of words here for you that might help to illustrate this. One is a a word meaning rapid breathing, like (sighs) sort of rapid breathing. In Job chapter four, verse nine, it speaks of the breath of his nostrils and the destructive power. Uh, Charan is a Hebrew word meaning burning. Cheta is a Hebrew word meaning hot displeasure. These are words that are translated wrath in our King James Bible. I'll not bore you with the, um, the Hebrew words, but other words mean a shaking with anger, a bursting out with anger. This speaks of sort of the violent nature of wrath. And that's what wrath is. It's anger that has become violent. Um, another word uh, is um, understood as rage. Now, the Bible often speaks of God's wrath. And uh, for some people, this is very distasteful, but yet it's an important aspect of God that we need to understand. Why does God have wrath? Why does he get even angry? Why is that? Well, I believe that the, the answer can be boiled down to one word, and that's sin. Sin is an offense in the eyes of God. It's offensive to God. Uh, some sins are so bad, they're, they're referred to as abominable. That has the idea of your stomach turning. You want to heave. That's that idea of abomination. And there are some sins that make God feel that way. Wrongdoing, evil, and injustices. These are things that ultimately are against God. King David, after he sinned in adultery with Bathsheba, in writing Psalm 51, he said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And we must understand that all sin is ultimately against our creator, against our maker. Even if it was directly aimed at another human being, God owns that human. The Bible teaches all souls are mine. God owns everyone. Everyone who is born 
everyone who had a stillbirth and is not alive, they've maybe they're in heaven. They did that. They were stillborn. All the souls in hell, all people belong to the creator to sin against another human is to sin against the creator in a family with a few children. When one child offends another child instantly, the parent feels it. Um, if a stranger were to offend one of your kids, mom or dad, you know how you'd feel. Hmm? And this, I believe, is why we have this character quality of God called wrath. But it's never sinful. God never allows his anger to control him. He always controls his anger. Now, that's different for many of us. So why is this that God controls his anger? Why is this? I believe because God's anger motivates him to do that which is right. It's a motivating force. Now, sin requires God to take one of two actions. According to theologians, God's uh, actions in his wrath are, number one, they can be punitive. That means like a punishment. That's more of a legal term, punitive. And God would use his wrath in a punitive way against the unsaved, those who are still children of the devil, not children of God. Those who are unsaved, those who are not born again, not part of God's family. They may be religious. They may be nice next door neighbors, but if they're not born again, they're not part of God's family. And that makes them children of wrath. That's a biblical term. And so God's wrath toward those people would be punitive. There's no investment. God has no investment in those, those people. They're to be punished. And then there are God's people, those that are born again, who commit sin. And God's wrath now is not punitive, but the second way, it's corrective. It's corrective. Very similar to how uh, a parent would correct misbehavior in the child. Now, how different from you and I is God's wrath? We are human. We are fleshly. We get angry without cause. Boy, some people have short fuses. How many know of someone that can blow their stack in a hurry? How many know of someone? Well, that's a number of hands. Yeah. And don't you just love to be around those people, right? You tiptoe on eggshells around some people in life. Oh, don't say anything. You'll make them upset when they get upset. Oh, boy. Now, it's sad when those people live in our home. Huh? How about that? At least if they're at school or at work, at the end of the day, you say goodbye. But if they're in your own home, that's another problem. God fixes problems, folks. Maybe if you're here today and you find that you're more on the huffy side, you tend to blow up quicker than you should. And you know it's wrong, but you just don't seem to have control over it. I know someone who can fix that. If you will honestly take that problem to God. He honestly will fix it. He may not fix it like that, but he will fix it. And very soon too, he'll show you things, what to do, what not to do. God is a wonderful father. If you know him as your savior, but as humans, we are very different from God. Now God gets angry over sin. We get angry over selfishness. 
Someone said something that hurt our feelings. Someone took something away from us. Oh, made us upset. God gets angry over sin, but us, it's our, our selfishness. I'll give you an example of that. How many here drive a car? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. All right. Hooray for you drivers. You know, I never prayed as much when I was driving as I do since I've moved here to Surrey. I lived in the city of Ottawa many years. I didn't pray when I drove. I come to Surrey. I pray every time I'm behind the wheel, especially at intersections. And I highly recommend this procedure for you. Pray and beg God's mercy and protection. But you're driving along. All of a sudden, the worst driver in the world sees your license plate. Ah, there you are, he says. He pulls up and cuts right in front of you. How do you feel? Oh, joy. Someone cut me off. Oh, yippee. It's going to be a good day after all. No, that's not how we respond. And some of us even go further than that. That's what that slanty pedals for, you know, on the floorboards of your car. Oh, show them. Get in front of them, put on the brake. Yeah, see how they like it. We get angry out of selfishness. God gets angry over sin. God never allows his anger to control him. We almost always allow our anger to control us. And it shoots us off in the wrong direction. And we say things we regret and we do things we regret. Now, how many here have ever said something in anger or done something in anger that afterwards you regretted? Raise your hand. Boy, oh boy, I feel comforted knowing that I'm not alone. We're human. It happens. And afterwards you say, oh, that was the dumbest thing I ever said. Oh, that was the stupid. I wish I could go back and undo what I did. I did it in anger. Oh, I'm so sorry. God never has that problem because he always is in control of his anger. For us, it's the other way around. God's anger motivates him to do that which is right. Some theologians refer to this, believe it or not, as his love in action. Say, how can that be? Because God corrects us in love. You see, his love, he loves us so much that he will not see us go off in bad behavior and, and hurt ourselves and others, but he'll get in there and correct us. That's his love in action. But us, our anger motivates us to do that which is wrong. That's why we rip things up. That's why we destroy things. That's why we say hurtful things because it motivates us to do wrong. James 1.20. James 1.20. You probably know it. Write it down. I'll start the verse and I'll bet you can finish it. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Yeah. Most of you know that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Boy, it's a real dog, isn't it? You and I, we need to learn to hate sin like God hates sin. We need to learn to hate it, not love it, not tolerate, but hate it. Now that doesn't mean that we hate the person, the sinner. It doesn't mean that at all. 
but the sin understand we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, you know, principalities and so on and rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's the enemy. It's not human beings. It's Satan and all his imps behind the humans. That's our wrestle. That's our struggle. We need to hate the sin, love the sinner, hate the sin. Sin is what sends men to hell. Sin is what nailed our savior to the cross. Sin caused him to dip his soul into our hell. We need to hate sin. We need to love righteousness. We need to turn our face away from sin and face righteousness. Only then will God's anger become our anger. We'll become like God in this and that we too will get angry at sin and we will never allow our anger to control us and our anger will motivate us to do that which is right. Often a parent getting upset at his or her child. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything. No, I'm not going to do it. And they'll bite their tongue or, you know, bite their lip and hold and hold it in and hold it in until finally they explode. And only then will they take some action. But by that point, it's way overdone. Anger tends to be personal. It tends to be selfish. It tends to be the punitive form. It tends to come from the sense of offense, our human anger, but not God's. So what is the answer? Well, if the parent, for example, would learn to really hate sin and love righteousness, then they would probably get God's sense of anger, which then would motivate them to take loving, corrective steps early in the child's life. Many parents, unfortunately, have had the embarrassing situation of going to the store with their toddler and at the checkout have the toddler throw a tantrum because the the little child wants the candy or something at the checkout. Boy, those stores are smart, aren't they? And then the parent, you know, is all embarrassed and then will buy all these things just to shut the kid up. And I think that the proper behavior at home, you know, is to train the child before you go to the store. All right, little Susie, little Johnny, we're going to go to the store and here's how we're going to do it and teach them how to behave. I think that lessens the problems. That's my opinion only, but I have raised three kids Well, we're talking today about the wrath of God. Now, I have several verses I'd like you to look at, but I think for the sake of time, I would just like you to jot these down, if you would, and look them up when you get home. They're important. Number one. Okay, here are some things that make God angry. All right, let's find out if we can, if we could know what makes God angry, you know, that's going to help us. It's going to help us very in a very important area. And I'll tell you about that in a moment, but write down second Kings 22, 13, second Kings 22, 13. And there you will learn that God is angry when his people do not obey his Bible. When the Bible teaching is very clear as to right and wrong and God's people do not obey it. God gets angry. Now we're talking God's people. I know the world is already under God's condemnation. I know that the unsaved, they're children of wrath. But folks, let's talk about us. When we as born again members of God's family 
read in the Bible or hear the preaching of the Bible, and we now know what God's will is for us concerning our home life, school life, work life, church life, our devotional life, how we should behave, what we should do. Have you noticed that those those 10 things there in Exodus are not called suggestions, the 10 suggestions. Have you noticed that? What are they called? The 10 what? Commandments, right. And so they're there to be obeyed. And when we, we see that, we're to honor our mother and father, and we disobey that. It's a clear command. It's very easy. A child understands this one. And we disobey it. God isn't happy. He gets mad. Now, some of us are growing up and our parents have long since passed away. So you say, ah, I'm free from that one. No, you're not, my friend, because many growing up Christian men and women who should know better speak very poorly of their mother and father. They don't refer to them with respect. They say, oh, my old lady, let me tell you something about her. And my old man, why he had beans for brains. My old geezer, he was a miserable, no good alcoholic. Listen, maybe he was. But you have no authority from God to tear him down in front of others like that. Even if he's dead, he's not here to defend himself. The word of God is here to defend him. You're to honor your mother and father, even if they beat you. You are to do it by faith. Say, why should I? Well, number one, God said so. Number two, God will bless you if you do. That's clear as a bell, Old Testament and New Testament. He will make things go well for you if you will honor them by faith. Take their picture and put it up on a wall of your home. Never speak evil of your mother or father again. They weren't perfect, but then neither are you. You're a product of that family. Praise God that you had a mom and dad. Hmm? Praise the Lord. And praise God that he makes no mistakes. He gave you the right mom. He gave you the right dad, even though you don't understand it. No mistake in the family you were born into. How would you like to be born into the, the family of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Adolf Hitler or something? Eh? That'd be a rough one, wouldn't it? You don't have it that rough. Praise God for your mom and dad. And you honor them. If they're still alive on Mother's Day, Father's Day, you make sure that you go overboard and honor them. And call them more than once a year, would you? Make them special. Honor your mother and father. Honor them. Both mine are gone. But I honor them. I honor their memory. I never speak evil of them. Were they perfect? Oh, far from it. That's why I'm a mess. Right? Am I wrong? <laughs> uh, you're right, Pastor. You're a mess. Thank you. <laughs> you get the idea. Anyhow, God gets angry when his people do not obey his written word. All right. Write down Psalm 212. Psalm 212. Psalm 212. And God gets angry when people do not submit to Jesus as Lord. That means to make him Lord of your life, where you consecrate yourself to him. Write down John 3.36. This, this one is very plain, that God is angry when people do not accept his son as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior. 
God so loved the world in John 3.16, he gave his only begotten son. And in John 3.36, you'll read that God gets angry when people do not accept. God gave his best. He gave his all. He gave him his self. Himself. He gave his son to us. Died on the cross. Didn't have to, but did because he loved us. God is angry when people do not receive Jesus as the Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. That's our our text that we looked at here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's the phrase who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And I'd like to suggest to you that kiss and cousin to this are those who change the meaning of scripture. Don't you mess with his word. Don't go changing what it says. You know, it's one of the problems we have today in our, in our English speaking world. We have something like 500 different English translations out on the market of the Bible. And what you end up with in too many Bible studies, too many churches is everyone brings a different version. You can't read the Bible together. Everyone sounds like they're speaking in tongues. They're they're seeing using different words and phrases. There are some Bibles that have all these extra words added in. There are some Bibles that remove Bible verses right out of there. And they give you a little footnote. Oh, the best manuscripts don't have this verse. They don't have this word and they don't have that phrase. Well, what do they have? All right, let's read this verse together. Now, what do you have? What does your Bible say? Now, what does your Bible say? Now, what does your Bible say? Oh, look, we've learned nothing. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That means you need an every word Bible. And I've been studying this subject for over 40 years. And I am more convinced now than I've ever been in my entire life that the King James Bible is the preserved word of God in English. It is accurate. You say how accurate It is deadly accurate. You go in for brain surgery. You talk to your brain surgeon, say, well, what are you going to do doc? And he pulls out a carpenter's saw. Well, we're going to cut you open son. With that? Oh yeah. And you say, well, 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 isn't that a little uh, uh, severe? He says, no. He says, look at this comic book here. They, they illustrate brain surgery right here. See, here's Super Doc. Look, he's got the same saw. I went out and bought one. You'd say, I want a second opinion. Thank you, Doc. God bless you. I'm out of here. The King James Bible is accurate. How accurate? It is dead on deadly accurate. Oh, but there's a few words I don't understand. Yeah, I believe it. That's why you need a dictionary. Interpret a couple of those hard words. Hmm? Have you never heard someone use a word that you had? Well, what is that word? What does that mean? They've used a word and you don't know what that word is. And just because you don't understand the word doesn't mean it's a good word. 47 of the world's greatest, most brilliant translators who learned those languages as children, children growing up. They were the world's greatest translators. God assembled them. And for seven long years, their full-time job was to give us the most accurate in English render rendering of the scriptures in Hebrew and Greek. We have God's word. Our problem is we don't read it. We don't study it. We say, Oh, I want something easier. I want a comic book. 
Well, that's the kind of Christianity you're going to live. You need every word that God has for you. And if there's a word God uses you don't understand, get a dictionary. That's all you got to do. Or Google it. How about that? That's a, one of our favorite terms. In Romans chapter 2, verse 8, you may as well look at it because you should be right there. Romans 2, verse 8, it says, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. Now, these are essentially lost people, but really, God is angry with people when they do evil. Did you know that coming one day to a world near you is going to be a period of time the Bible refers to as the tribulation? It's seven years in length. The tribulation is not a time where Satan pours out his wrath on the world. It's a time where God pours out his wrath on the world, and it's progressive. It starts off with little bits and gets more and more and more. And then by the midpoint of the seven and seven years, it takes a huge change and gets very violent. But it's seven years of his wrath is what it is. What should we do? I suggest three steps. Number one, learn to humble yourself before God every day. Did you know that Proverbs 15 verse one says a soft answer turneth away wrath. Wrath. That means we need to humble ourselves before God. That means that when we talk to God, we need to come as the creature, not the creation. We need to come as the, the piece of pottery, not as the potter. We need to come as the thing made. We belong to him. We are his purchased possession. We need to humble ourselves before almighty God and speak softly. Number two, we need to admit our sin when we've sinned. First John one, nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Aren't you glad? You don't have to go and shed blood. You don't have to go and crawl over glass and over nails. You need to confess it. What does that word mean? It means to thoroughly own up to your sin. If you're a hothead, if you've got a dirty mouth, a dirty mind, if you've got a problem with sin, you are to confess that before God. Don't try and butter it up and paint it up and make it something it's not. That's what the Pharisees did. They took their, their rotten old corpse graves and they would whitewash these sepulchers, make them look good on the outside, but on the inside they stunk dead men's bones. And that's what sin is in the nostrils of Almighty God. And he knows it. And deep down, we know it too. And we need to confess our sin. That means to thoroughly own up to it. You know why some men and women don't get saved? You know why some people do not receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior? Because they don't believe that God would throw them into hell. Well, I'm not all that bad, they say. I've never murdered anyone. Maybe not with a gun. But you've probably hatchet someone, stuck the knife in their back with your thoughts or your words. Just as good as murder. Just as good as pulling the trigger. We think, well, you know, I'm okay. You're okay. Uh, God's okay. He's a good old buddy. He'll understand. When I stand before God one day, you know, God and me, we're like two peas in a pod. Oh, please. You're fooling yourself. God is almighty. We are his creatures. It's only through Jesus Christ we can get our sins forgiven. And if we're saved, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Hallelujah. That's good news. 
I'm glad that if I get dirty, I know where I can go to get clean. I don't have to stay dirty. Point number three, learn to hate sin. Write down Psalm 119, verse 128. Psalm 119, verse 128. Those words are, I hate every false way. Now, when you hate it, it doesn't mean that you're to go get a gun and shoot the person doing it. It doesn't mean that. Remember, you're to hate the sin, not the sinner. You love the sinner. Members of your own family that may be messing up in sin, don't hate them. Don't hate them. Love them. Don't love the sin, but love the sinner. And so three simple steps for us today is speak softly, admit your sin, and learn to hate sin. But listen to this. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Understanding the wrath of God is partly how we find the fear of the Lord. And that word fear is used in both a negative and a positive sense. I know there are some Christians that struggle with this and they say, oh, we're not supposed to fear God. And all they can think of is maybe when they were a kid or maybe they know of a kid who when daddy comes home, they would run and hide. And they say, see, that's bad. And I don't want to be like that with my heavenly father. I don't want to fear him. No, you're not getting the whole picture, my friend. Learning the fear of the Lord is something healthy. Because God promises us in chapter 9, verse, verse 10, that it's the beginning of wisdom. And also in chapter 2, verse 5, it says that the fear of the Lord, we will find the knowledge of God. If you want to know God more and have the knowledge of God, if you want to have God's wisdom, you need to appreciate and understand and accept this aspect of God's character. The fear of the Lord. It'll teach you to tread lightly. It'll teach you to speak softly. It'll teach you that he is high and holy, a thrice holy God and high and lifted up. And us, well, we're not perfect yet. And we have to realize we belong to him. He can pull a cork any day he wants. We're only living by his grace and mercy. You know that any one of us could have laid down on the pillow last night and not opened our eyes this morning. Any one of us could have passed away in the night. You didn't, nor did I. Why? Oh, it's because of cosmological baloney. It's because of his mercy and his grace. He's given us another day to draw breath. Your heart beating along. You know, all it has to do, that. And game over. Aren't you thankful for his mercy? Aren't you so thankful that he loved you even in spite of your sin? And he didn't just squash you like a bug. Ah, you little sin, you deserve this. Yeah. He could have, but he didn't because he loved us. But that's not a license to sin. It's a license to fear God. You know, a good, proper, healthy relationship with a a father and a child There should be lots of love, but there should be a certain element of fear. I don't want to displease my father. Not that he'll beat me, but that I'll break his heart. I love him so much. He's such a wonderful dad. I don't want to do anything that would break his heart. And here we are, God's children. And when we sin, we break his heart. 
Well, God has the power to bring wrath in a corrective sense into our lives. And we sure don't want that. And it really helps us with the fear of the Lord. And when we start to have this wonderful element, this fear of the Lord, all of a sudden now, God opens the windows of heaven and we begin to get wise. And he brings to us knowledge. I think because we're ready. But listen, I need to close here. My friend, if you're here today and you've never actually humbled yourself before Jesus Christ and admitted that you are on your way to hell, Jesus died for your sin and you need Jesus. You are not yet born again. You are abiding under God's wrath. The Bible refers to you as a child of wrath. You're abiding, you're living under the wrath of God and it's, it's a judgment against you that will one day be carried out. In our courts of law, offenders are arrested, brought before uh, the judge, jury, deliberation is made. Later on, after they're found guilty, they're brought back for their sentencing. And then sentence begins, 20 years in prison or whatever it may be. Unsaved people are living with a condemnation over their head. They're not in hell yet, but they will be. Sentence will be carried out. Sad thing is between now and the time they actually die, that sentence is going to grow and grow and grow because they're still sinning. A man goes to prison with a 10-year sentence. While he's in prison, he offends a guard. They add five more years to it. While he's living that, that out, he knifes a, another prisoner, kills the prisoner. Now he's in for another 20 years. When you get into hell, you take your sin nature with you. You'll curse God and blaspheme. You'll shake your fist at him. You will never, ever be able to pay off your sentence in hell. Don't ever think that after a thousand years, you'll be let out. Because your sin nature will keep you sinning in hell. Your sentence is forever and ever and ever. You are under the condemnation, the wrath of God. My friend, the best thing I can tell you is flee to the cross of Christ today. You may be a wonderful person, nice neighbor, religious person. You read the Bible and pray, but you've never really admitted you're on your way to hell. You need a savior. If you would do that today, Jesus will come into your heart. He will wash away your sin. Take him as your savior and your Lord. Lay your life before him as Lord. Accept him as your sin bearer and your savior. If you do that today, you will be saved. Let's stand to our feet today, shall we?